Exodus 21, 22 through 25. When men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her children are born prematurely, but there is no injury, the one who hit her must be fined as the woman's husband demands from him, and he must pay according to the judicial assessment. If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. May Yahweh bless His word to our hearts today. May we receive this today for what it is. It is not the word of man. It is the word of the Almighty. Last week, I went through this text, and instead of starting an exegesis of the verses, I laid a foundation for life beginning inside the womb. I think I laid a pretty good case, and it's not because it's me. It's because I think the Scriptures are clear. If a six-month gestation baby, later named Yohanan, later named Yohanan the Washer or Yohanan the Baptizer, the Baptists call him John the Baptist, that doesn't mean he was a Baptist, right? It means he baptized people. At one time in my little bitty life, I thought maybe he belonged to the Baptist church down the, down the street. And I was a Pentecostal, so I thought, am I supposed to be a Baptist? But if Yahweh can feel that little in utero baby with the Holy Spirit, and then who are we to question life that begins inside of the womb? I believe Genesis 25... Luke 1, Psalm 139, and Exodus 21 sufficiently prove that this is the Hebrew view, and thus it is Yahweh's view that He taught to His people. If this law in Exodus 21 was not recognizing a forming of life inside the womb, why even mention a pregnant woman here? Why mention if two men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman? The law could just say when men get in a fight and hit a woman so that she's injured. It says pregnant woman for a reason. It mentions a pregnant woman because the law is specifically concerned with what is being formed inside of the woman. Now this doesn't mean that the woman cannot get hurt too as an innocent bystander. She could be hurt. Other people or things around the fight could be hurt as well. So this law should not only be read as specific to harm on an unborn child. It should also be read as something called Case law. Case law refers to a law that shows precedent and determines how to deal with what takes place in other different cases. So, let's say that men get into a fight and one of them accidentally hits and shatters your car window. Who pays for the window? Not you. You didn't shatter it. One of the men, or maybe both of the men, that were fighting. The baby inside the pregnant woman in this text shows great damage, life. But lesser damages are covered under this law when we understand that it is case law. Now we might take this even further. I thought about this particularly this week as I was trying to think of an example. Men getting into a fight is ruckus that's caused whereby they not only hurt each other, but they might hurt an innocent bystander or the property of an innocent bystander like the car window. Think about a person who knows that having drinks at a local bar, too many drinks at a local bar, or pub, duels their senses and their perception, and then they get behind the wheel of a car and drive 45, 55, 65, 70 miles an hour and place somebody else's life at risk. 
Now, all you have to do, I thought about showing you some, but you can do this in your time. All you have to do is a quick internet search for deaths caused by drunk drivers. And what really tugs on the heartstrings is when you see mothers and uncles and aunts testify in a court of law about their son or their wife, so forth and so on, that died due to a drunk driver swerving over into the opposite lane and killing somebody or injuring somebody. So a person could be injured by a drunk driver. A person could be killed by a drunk driver. So the person injured or killed is either laid up in the hospital for a time, sometimes months, or they're laid to rest at a funeral. Whose fault is it? It's a drunk driver's fault. The law of Exodus 21, 22 through 25 shows that the person causing the ruckus is at fault even if there was no direct assault on the innocent bystander. Now, you might ask the question, what about Exodus 21, 13? Look at it real quick. We covered this earlier in a sermon. Exodus 21, let's read 12 and 13. Whoever strikes a person so that he dies must be put to death. But if he didn't intend any harm and yet the Almighty caused it to happen by his hand, I will appoint a place for you where he may flee. What's the difference between Exodus 21, 13, where a person didn't intend any harm on somebody, and two men that got in a fight and accidentally or unintentionally hit the pregnant woman? The difference is this. One is average, everyday life. The other is something that doesn't have to take place, but happens because of anger or neglect. So the example that Deuteronomy gives us in chapter 19, which is an old example, but it still is a good illustration, is where me and Brother Isaac want to go chop some wood because we need some wood, and we both go out to the field with our axes, and my anvil, uh, or the, the solid piece on my axe, flies off my handle and hits Brother Isaac, and he dies. It's awful. It's terrible but it was just an average, everyday job that I was doing. Nobody was causing ruckus or anything. In the case of Exodus 21, we have two men getting into a fight and hitting a pregnant woman, causing ruckus. I would say the same thing holds for the drunk driver. What I'd like to spend some time on today is looking at whether this law in Exodus 21 is about a live birth or a miscarriage. Now, scholars see it and write about it from both angles. I touched on this briefly last week. And the reason that it's debated is because the text just says that the pregnant woman is hit and her yaled yatzah, her child, exits, or her children go forth. Some translations read it as a miscarriage. New Revised Standard on the screen reads it that way. The HCSB reads it as a live, premature birth. In support of the miscarriage view, we have some Aramaic Targums, the Latin Vulgate, and traditional rabbinical interpretation. This view reads the text and sees two scenarios in the text. Okay, this is the miscarriage view. The two scenarios are here. One, the pregnant woman miscarries from the fight, but no further harm is done to the woman. In this case, there's a fine that must be paid as the woman's husband demands, and the judges assess the situation and enforce a penalty. The second scenario in this view is that the woman miscarries, but she is also injured and or dies. And then the law of eye for eye and tooth for tooth come into play. So the miscarriage view sees the injury and the assault done strictly on the woman. And the miscarriage, unfortunately, 
just happens and there's really no damages that are done to it. That's the miscarriage view. In support of the live birth view, live premature birth view, or maybe even live fuller term birth view, is the ambiguous Hebrew phrase, Yeled Yatzah. Now, for my Hebrew scholars in here, Brother Sandy, that's not how exactly the phrase reads in Hebrew. It's more technical, but I'm trying to simplify it with just the two words, child and exit. So, Yeled Yatzah. So we have that ambiguous phrase that doesn't mention miscarriage or live birth. It just mentions child goes forth. And we have the Septuagint. Now I'm going to get back to the Septuagint here in a second. The point here is that the phrase just reads, English Standard Version, her children come out. Since the text is ambiguous and it can be read in more than one way, that's what ambiguous means, the safe view is to read it as covering both a miscarriage and a live birth, whether premature or full term. So the live birth view doesn't rule out that a miscarriage is included. It just says that there's more to it and that a live premature birth is still in view. When we look up this Hebrew phrase, Yeled Yatzah, in the Tanakh, the Older Testament, it is used throughout the Hebrew Bible for childbirth. For example, in Genesis 25, it's used when Jacob and Esau exited Rebekah's womb. In Genesis 38, it's used where Perez and Zerah exited Tamar's womb. Both of those were what? Live births, where the children were alive. It's also used in the book of Job, where Job speaks of his own birth. Obviously, we know Job was talking about a live birth. He was alive. But in Numbers 12, verse 12, it is used, the phrase, for a miscarriage. So it's used in the Hebrew Bible in both ways. So this second view, this live birth view of Exodus 21-22, covers miscarriages, premature births, and even fuller term births. Here's the two points. If two men get in a fight and hit a pregnant woman so that her baby is born dead, premature, or the woman is near full term and delivers, but there is no further injury to either the woman or the baby, there is a fine that is imposed on the fighting men as the judges determine. Second scenario is, if the same thing happens, but there's further injury to either the woman or the baby, then the law of eye for eye and tooth for tooth comes into play. So you see the difference? The miscarriage only view sees the further injury is happening only to the woman. The live birth view sees the further injury is happening to either the woman, the baby, or both. What about the Septuagint reading? Here's where it gets interesting if you're not interested already. The Septuagint reading for Exodus 21, 22 through 23, and I'm reading from the Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on the Septuagint, says this. If two men get in a fight and hurt a woman with child, and her child is born imperfectly formed, he shall surely be punished according, accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if the child is perfectly formed, he shall give life for life. You notice the Septuagint places emphasis on what is inside the womb. It can't be just the woman being injured in the Septuagint because the child in the womb is called either imperfectly formed or perfectly formed. That is quite an intriguing alternate old reading. The understanding here is that damage may be done to a pregnant woman but there's a difference, according to the Septuagint reading, in the penalty depending upon the development of life 
development of the child inside the woman. If the baby is not fully formed, there is a fine. If the baby is fully formed, the penalty may be as steep as capital punishment if the fully formed baby dies. So the Septuagint reading covers miscarriages. I would say that it also covers premature or full-term live births. Philo's commentary is important here. I found this in one of the commentaries that I was reading on the book of Exodus this week, and then I spent some time in the works of Philo. Philo gives us an old Israelite understanding on this Septuagint reading. Philo was an Israelite man. He was a Levite. He lived in Alexandria, Egypt, so he was a Jew of the diaspora or the dispersion. And he read the Septuagint because that was the lingua franca, the common language of the known world, and especially in Alexandria, Egypt, where Philo lived. It became the common language of the known world because of a guy named Alexander the Great. He basically conquered everywhere in the world, and he was a Greek. And so when he conquered a land, he would influence that land, and they would begin to speak Greek. So it's kind of like a lot of places in the world today speak English. It's a common language. So Greek would have been that way at that time. The Torah portion, Genesis through Deuteronomy, which, by the way, those names that we know for the first five books of the Bible don't come from the Hebrew Bible. (laughs) They come from the Septuagint. The reason you call it Genesis is because of Septuagintal influence. Most people don't realize that, but it's the same thing for Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and, and Deuteronomy. The Torah portion was done sometime between 250 to 200 B.C. That's 200 plus years before the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. Philo was a historian, like Flavius Josephus. He recorded much in the way of the history of the Hebrew people. He often commented on texts in the Tanakh. And his comments show ancient views held on particular laws that were laid down through Prophet Moshe. He writes this in one of his works titled Special Laws 3, Section 108. But if anyone has a contest with a woman who is pregnant and strike her a blow on her belly and she miscarry, If the child was conceived within her is still unfashioned and unformed, he shall be punished by a fine, both for the assault which he committed and also, catch this, because he has prevented nature who was fashioning and preparing that most excellent of all creatures, a human being, from bringing him into existence. But if the child which was conceived had assumed a distinct shape in all its parts, having received all its proper connective and distinctive qualities, he shall die. For such a creature as that is a man whom he has slain while still in the workshop of nature, who had not thought it as yet a proper time to produce him to the light, but had kept him like a statue lying in a sculptor's workshop, requiring nothing more than to be released and sent out into the world. So Philo views this law as covering miscarriages. He says it. But at the same time, he sees his Greek Torah as indicating that the injury done here is not just on the mother, but also on the baby. The difference is based on the Septuagint, unformed or fully formed. Either way, there's a loss, but the fine is steeper if the baby has its nose, eyes, fingers, toes, etc. Philo sees death as the punishment for killing a fully formed baby inside the womb. He calls the baby a man in the workshop of nature. The workshop of nature there means the mother's womb. That's nature's workshop. Now, I want to continue to read something in Philo to show you something that most pastors would probably never bring up in a sermon. 
or maybe to people in general, but I'm not most pastors. <laughs> and this is not your average church. <laughs> Brother Dylan, the young man here that read the Torah portion for us, he said, uh, never been to a church like this. He told me that a couple times so far. and um, Hopefully he's enjoying himself. He said he's learning every time he comes, which is good. That's what congregation or assembly going to the synagogue should be about. I bring this up because I like to lay all the cards out on the table. I like to give you, as Yahweh's people, all information so you can make your own decision as to what you're going to believe on this text. And so that if a situation arises and you've thought about it, you've listened to the sermon, you've done your study, you'll be better equipped if you have the ability to make decisions and make actions accordingly. Just because, like I talked about a couple weeks ago with uh, brothers getting into a fight and one of them having to spend time in the hospital. I use Sandy for an example. Just because a modern-day American court may not carry out that exact judgment doesn't mean that I, as a child of Yahweh, can't still adhere to Yahweh's law and take care of Sandy's bills if I hurt Sandy. Or if Sandy hurts me, we'll do the same. See what I'm saying? So let's not use, well, the court didn't tell me I had to do that if Yahweh's word already told us we had to do that. There is one law. And one lawgiver, his name is Yahweh. He's a self-existent one that calls us to be. And so we go by his law, his law alone. So the best way to teach is to tell you everything, not hide anything from you. I have full confidence in you. I believe I get to teach some of the best people on the earth. I love everybody. I appreciate everybody. Thank you for diligently listening to the sermons. I put these sermons together, and I'm sure Brother Jerry and Brother TJ feel the same way, but sometimes I spend so much time on a text, and then I speak on it for 30 or 45 minutes in a sermon, and I'm like, well, that's over. What about all that time I put into that text? (laughs) I want to talk about it more. But thankfully, you know, sometimes 10 years later, I'll have somebody ask me about a sermon, and so I have it available. So if anybody would like the notes too, I always post the notes online where you can read them. Philo does see a difference between life inside the womb or outside the womb. We know that because of what he writes in a section soon after the one that I just quoted. Now, this is Special Laws 3, section 117. The first one was section 108. This is section 117. Quote, No doubt the view that the child, while still adhering to the womb below the belly, is part of its future mother, is current both among natural philosophers whose life study is concerned with the theoretical side of knowledge and also among physicians of the highest repute who have made researches into the construction of man and examined in detail what is visible and also by careful use of anatomy what is hidden from sight in order that if medical treatment is required, nothing which could cause serious danger should be neglected through ignorance. But when the child has been brought to the to the birth, it is separated from the organism with which it was identified and being isolated and self-contained becomes a living animal, lacking none of the complements needed to make a human being. End of quote. Now follow here in this section mentions physicians of the highest reputation and he says they've researched carefully what is hidden from sight. What does that mean? That's talking about the child. The baby is hidden from sight. But physicians back then, remember, they didn't have ultrasounds like we have nowadays. 3D, 4D, I think maybe I saw a 5D ultrasound. I don't know what that even means. But I think I saw one of those the other day where you can see all the little features of, of the baby. 
Well, back then it was hidden from sight completely. But these physicians of highest reputation carefully considered what was hidden from sight. And he says this, they came to the conclusion that if there's some medical treatment that nothing should be done to cause serious danger to what? The child inside the womb. They saw a difference between a child in the womb and outside the womb. But if they needed to do some kind of medical treatment on the woman, they wanted to be careful not to cause any serious danger to that which is hidden from sight. And remember, Philo followed the Septuagint reading of Exodus 21 where harm to the unborn child is the proper reading. He just recognized the difference between an unformed baby and a fully formed baby, as does the Septuagint Torah. Philo's comments cover miscarriages, but the LXX reading, the Septuagint reading, I believe also can cover live births or fully formed babies who may have been injured from the fight but survive. You see that point? So a baby is, it it comes out of the woman, let's say maybe at 35, 37, 38 weeks. It's close to full term. And the baby is alive and survives, but the baby is injured. Not just the mother, or maybe not the mother and just the baby. I think the Septuagint can cover those cases as well. And so I take, Brother Matthew takes the position that miscarriages, premature births, and live full-term births are all covered in Exodus 21, 22 through 25. Now, how does all of this connect, if in any way, to the abortion debate of our day? Hot topic at times. I don't think it's really a hot topic right now in the news media. I don't watch the news media, but I don't think I've heard anybody say anything about it. So it's probably a good time for these messages to be preached. I want to point out something here that you may have already thought about. Nothing that we've been over, either in Scripture or in the writings of Philo, address the intentional harming of a child, whether unformed or fully formed in a woman's womb. So the reality is, Exodus 21, 22 through 25, does not address modern-day abortion directly because it's not speaking of someone intentionally doing anything to a baby inside of a woman. You see my point that I'm making? It only speaks of unintentional damage done to the child or the woman due to reckless behavior by another person or persons. Now, if all of this space and thought and law goes into what happens in the case of unintentionally harming a pregnant woman, What do you think that Yahweh thinks of intentionally harming a pregnant woman? Do you see the point? It's what's called in Hebrew a kol vahomer argument. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this lesser thing is true, how much more is this greater thing true? The author of Hebrews makes this argument on the sacrifices and the priesthood that are good. He said, if these things are good and righteous and just, how much greater and more perfect is Yeshua's priesthood and His sacrifice? So, once again... If Yahweh is so concerned with unintentionally harming a child in the womb, how much more is He concerned with intentionally harming a child in the womb? Stats show that 9 out of 10 modern-day abortions take place before a woman is 12 weeks pregnant. And only 1% of all abortions take place after a woman is 21 weeks pregnant. Here's what a baby somewhat looks like at 21 weeks gestation on the left 
And beside it on the right is a baby that was born premature at 21 weeks and survived due to modern medical technology. It's the youngest baby to ever survive. Here is four, five, and eight-week gestation, the time period when the large majority of abortions are done today. Now, somebody might hear this sermon and try to argue that, well, the baby's not fully formed here. And I would actually agree with that. But the law in Exodus 21, again, deals with what happens indirectly to a pregnant woman, not directly. So if any skeptic or somebody that doesn't really want to believe the Bible, if they try to use Exodus 21 or Philo's commentary as support for modern-day abortion, it's a dishonest argument. I believe that young men and women should be taught by example and by word by us older men and women the responsibility that they are taking on when they get pregnant. I do not believe anything should be done directly and intentionally to terminate a pregnancy. As Philo called it, it's nature's workshop, fashioning and preparing that most excellent of all creatures, a human being. Now, I understand that there are extreme cases where a mother's life really may be in danger and where you have to choose between two, or at least you think you have to in the spur of the moment. I get that. That makes for a more developed and complex discussion. I also understand that there are cases of rape and incest. I taught a sermon on this. I I mentioned it when I went through the Sixth Commandment. I would encourage you, if you want more on it, you can listen to that lesson. But that, too, makes for a more advanced discussion in the cases of rape and, and incest. But when all the dust settles, we all know that what grows inside of a pregnant woman is a baby. I think everybody in the world knows it. Just like they know that when grandmama bakes inside of an oven, it's a cake, even though it's not done. And there's a process in the cake being formed, and there's a process with the baby being formed. But you know what? It's not just with a little baby in gestation. There's a process for my recently born granddaughter, Amelia, to grow up in life, to be an adult. She's in that process right now. She's still growing. As a matter of fact, my 14-year-old son, David, my youngest child, he's still growing and developing. He's still going to develop and grow. I remember I kept getting taller and taller until I was about 16 or 17. Six foot three I ended up, Brother Jerry. Tall, skinny guy, lanky. I was 165 pounds in high school. I am not going to tell you how much I weigh now. at almost 42 years old. But my point is, is that we say, well, there's a development in the womb. There's a process, unformed, fully formed. Well, David's not even fully formed yet. Amelia's going to change shape and even change the way she looks as she gets older and older. So whether it's from birth to adulthood or from conception to birth, there's a growth process of a human being. Let me close with this. When young women get pregnant... Let's say they're part of our congregation. And let's say a young woman gets pregnant and she's scared. And maybe the young man left, as happens often. Let's step in and encourage the young girl. Let's don't shun her. Let's don't put her away. A lot of times abortions take place because young women don't think that they can get any help from people that are supposed to help them. Let's not be that way even if we find a young unbelieving girl that this happens to, let's treat her with love and with care and with mercy. 
There's a possibility of a little child growing in that womb and being born one day. And you know what? The love and the kindness will draw her to repentance. Romans 2 verse 4. It's the kindness of Yahweh that draws people to repentance. Not spitting and shouting and hollering and shunning people, but being kind. Let's get her attached to a good community if need be where she'll know she won't be alone in raising her child. Friends, family, church, we're here to help. Let's don't belittle anyone for what's already happened because at that point we cannot change it. Let's instead welcome her and her baby and the father of the baby with open arms if he's still in the picture. Let's do it in such a way and so strongly and with such love and kindness that she won't even think that abortion could be an answer to her dilemma or her problem. But that she knows if she has the baby, there will be sisters here to help her and brothers as well in areas where we may can help. At the same time, let's teach our children from a young age as they get older the sanctity of life, the sanctity of marriage, and the importance of community. You're not meant to do life by yourself. You got to plug into a community. I know sometimes we see each other here at this congregation more than other times, and I enjoy that. When we keep all eight days, all week long with Sukkot, and we're here, and you get over with, and it's kind of bittersweet. You know, you got to get back to work, you got to get back to normal life, but you're like, man, thy kingdom come, Yahweh, thy will be done. I'd like to do this all the time. I'd love to study the Torah. I'd love to plant fields and working with my hands without any thorns or thistles popping up and sit under my own grapevine and fig tree and hagag and meditate. I'd love to do that all the time. Well, it's important that we plug into a community. Even if sometimes we only see in fellowship once a week, we can still do texts and phone calls and messages on social media and we can keep in touch with each other and encourage one another. You get outside of the community, you slowly wither and drift away. You plug into the community, you'll still have times of dryness. You'll still have times where you don't feel like it, but you'll hear somebody testify or somebody pray or somebody read, and all of a sudden a spark will come back. Well, let's encourage these young people that may get in this situation to become part of the community. Let's teach our children the importance of community, life, and marriage. And I think that this will greatly help prevent the situations where abortion appears to be the answer. Do you love Yahweh's Word? Amen. A lot of times in the Scriptures, in the Aramaic Targums, when it says that, when the Hebrew says that Yahweh came to people to talk, the Targum will say the Word of Yahweh came to the person to talk. I love Yahweh and I love His Word. I love His Word that was made flesh. I believe in that. Let's close out with our song. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall think on it day and night. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, but stay on the narrow path. Be careful to do what Yah tells you to do so that you will have good success. I love everybody. Yahweh loves you. Till next time. Shalom.